hello and welcome to another episode of Addiction Audio, uh, the podcast for the journal Addiction. Today I am joined by uh, Dr Paolo De Luca, who is a reader in addictions uh, research at King's College London. And uh, Paolo will be talking to me about his recently published paper in addiction titled, and I need to take a slightly deep breath here before launching into the title, Effectiveness and cost-effectiveness of face-to-face and electronic brief interventions versus screening alone to reduce alcohol consumption among high-risk adolescents presenting to emergency departments, colon, three-armed pragmatic randomised trial, um, and in brackets, SIPS Junior High-Risk Trial. So, uh, Paolo, uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you. Thank you, Rob, and thank you for the opportunity to talk about this study. And well done for reading the, the full title without any typos or error. Yeah, I, that was, it was genuinely the first run through as well. Usually I'd have to um, take a few efforts and, and pick the best one. Um, so just to unpick a little bit about what you did to start with. Uh, so you were looking at um, alcohol consumption among high-risk adolescents. So why is this area so important to get those kind, particularly in emergency departments, why is it so important to, to look at those opportunities? Well, we, we know that alcohol consumption has been uh, decreasing for some years now um, among um, young people and in general uh, across uh, uh, the general population as well. But what we also tend to notice is that those people that uh, do drink tend to drink more. And we also know that alcohol consumption uh, rises steeply through adolescence and excessive alcohol consumption is also linked or has an increased risk of uh, leading to criminal behavior, self-harm, suicide, accident, and accident for, for, uh, for instance. So this is obviously important that we tackle this problem and emergency departments are uh, what we thought at the time when we put uh, the bid, uh, an ideal setting to target this uh, this age group and this population. So you were particularly looking at the effectiveness of of brief interventions and you you compared that to two other uh, conditions, which we'll we'll come back to in a moment. But what what kind of form did these brief interventions take? I mean, what would would someone say to an adolescent who is in an emergency department uh, with an alcohol-related issue? Yeah, we, we... We developed these uh, uh, brief interventions based on the work that had already been done uh, for many years in the targeting adults uh, uh, drinking. And they tend to focus and have the same format um, uh, throughout in terms of uh, uh, the content. They, they tend to feedback on the, on the outcome of the screening. Mm-hmm. And usually that is the crucial component uh, that when people realize that their drinking is in excess of what, what is recommended. Um, we then tend to compare the person drinking to the wider population, so the prevalence of drinking uh, among the general populations to see whether they are an outlier or let's say they are not the norm because most people will drink uh, within the recommended limits. And then we focus also on the consequences of drinking, um, the benefits and strategies uh, uh, that people might adopt to reduce the drinking, setting some goals, 
uh, we also provide uh, uh, links or uh, telephone numbers or resources, uh, local resources for people to uh, seek uh, further help if they need. Um, so that's more or less the core component of, of our brief interventions. And they tend to be, uh, you know, you can do all these within five to 10 minutes. Um, there are obviously longer versions where you might tend to spend more time with people uh, developing a bit more the strategies um, or identifying the benefits of reducing drinking so that they elicit uh, uh, an intention to change uh, their drinking behavior. So, I mean, running a randomized controlled trial in itself is fairly is a challenge let's say um but you you um you went for a three-armed trial comparing three conditions um why did you decide on that and and what were those three arms yes i mean con conducting a three arms uh, trial is obviously adding extra burden to the research team the resources needed uh, you obviously need a, a larger sample size which in um which also then requires a larger number of settings to recruit uh, the participants needed to, to find, uh, uh, um, to have enough power to be confident of your, of your outcomes. Um, so we originally didn't really uh, uh, have a plan for free arm trials. We were more looking at a brief intervention versus uh, um, screening alone or treatment as usual. But with um, consultation stage uh, with the target group, it came up, it came very clear the intent that the interest from this target group to have also an electronic intervention as an alternative to a face-to-face -face, uh, interventions, and uh, and obviously be mindful of the uh, increased availability of uh, smartphone apps and so on, we thought it was also uh, uh, a possibility that we were kind of interested to explore and, 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 and see whether that was as effective as face-to-face uh, -face interventions. And as I said earlier, the, the stages or the components of this uh, brief advice or brief intervention can be easily transferred in, into a, an electronic deliver interventions and we had already examples especially for the adult um, groups where um, web-based electronic interventions have been developed so the natural step uh, then was to try to condense all these in a in a small smartphone app intervention so and you compared both of these to uh, just screening that was your kind of control group really just just screening alone yes that was the our um comparator so i mean without wishing to kind of spoil anything um you you didn't find any difference between there was no significant difference between those three conditions did, i mean did this surprise you as an outcome uh, well, the short answer is, is, is yes. Uh, obviously, it's always a bit disappointing that uh, uh, you, you're not finding what you, you're set to search in, 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 a, in, a, in a study. Um, we obviously found that uh, alcohol consumption increased uh, across um, 
all groups. Um, uh, but that was uh, a bit expected because, uh, as I mentioned earlier, throughout adolescence, uh, there is an increase in uh, alcohol consumption anyway. But there were no different, significant difference between the, the interventions. Um, so in a way, yes, it was surprising uh, to a certain degree, but uh, we already done a, um, a few other clinical trials uh, with other target groups. And we also uh, didn't find significant uh, difference, differences uh, between the intervention and the control groups in, in, those, um, in those trials. So a bit of a surprise, but not too much of a surprise. Um, but that's where we are with the, in the field of uh, brief interventions where the evidence is not uh, completely clear. Um, uh, a a little is, is weaker than uh, we might want it to be. Is this something that's because you, you mentioned earlier that, that this, this builds on some work on brief interventions that you've done with adults? Is this kind of lack of an effect size related to, to the population with young people? Is that something specific there, do you think? Well, we we also didn't find uh, an effectiveness in the in the adult populations, and we we are not the only one who failed to find uh, effectiveness uh, in in randomized controlled trials. I think the main issue some, uh, for many of these um, studies is when you move away from an efficacy trial or a single site study where you have highly trained um, professionals or practitioners delivering the intervention and you move, away, you move into the real world uh, NHS setting uh, is probably where you tend to lose some of the, that effectiveness that you, you might have had there in the early stages of uh, the brief intervention kind of field. It's, that's that I find that area really interesting because it then asks questions about whether whether it's a question of implementation. Is there a way of implementing this in a way that does work, or, or whether it becomes a question of this is something that can only ever happen in highly controlled settings and and is kind of almost doomed to be ineffective in in the kind of chaotic real world settings of of, of NHS. Well, I guess the frank answer there is that we need to be be able to question whether the brief intervention works um, in, in 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 routine practice, in real practice. Um, but on the other hand, we know that in some settings, uh, in certain circumstances, they do make a difference. Uh, so it's, it's a matter then to as researchers to understand how, when, and why this this there is this difference. Um, it is obviously disappointing when when you put so much effort, so much uh, time, and resources, uh, and and you don't find uh, a clear a clear evidence that it is working um, in in the real settings, in the real world settings. If we can kind of move on to some of the uh, the methods a little bit again, so it's a complex area of study with kind of there's multiple vulnerabilities. There's young people, there's alcohol, and there's emergency uh, department settings. Can you talk us through some of the some of the ethical considerations you had to work with when recruiting young people with alcohol uh, use related admissions in emergency uh, settings? How did you what did you have to do to make sure that that was that was done in a way that that followed best practice? Sure. Yes, yeah, so it, it is um, 
Well, it has been uh, it has been a quite a, an endeavor to to make this uh, study happen. As I mentioned earlier, we we involved ten emergency departments. We ran it for around eight months, um, and we were recruiting from 10 a.m. in the morning to 10 p.m. in the afternoon, and we were covering seven days a week. And to, to achieve that, we had a, a, essentially an army of researchers covering uh, that were trained and deployed and supervised, um, working essentially uh, two sh shifts of six hours throughout the, throughout the study. So a total probably of more than 100 members of staff we had working on, on, on this study. So this is on, on the practical side, they obviously had to follow the research protocol and which was fairly clear in terms of uh, confidentiality and how to seek uh, uh, consent, especially uh, because some of the, our participants were under 16. 16 is, is where um, within the NHS you are, old enough to make an informed decision. So uh, the, the crucial component in the consent procedures were usually around people uh, younger than, than 16, where um, that either involved uh, a parental uh, consent as well, or an assessment of whether they were Gillick competence, whether they were uh, able to consent on their own uh, to take part in the study. Uh, obviously being mindful that uh, taking part in the study involved receiving an intervention and also agreeing to uh, uh, being followed up at six and 12 months uh, post intervention. So we, we, we presented the study uh, largely as, a, as an alcohol and lifestyle health survey uh, mostly to avoid parents uh, in attendance to um, refuse their, 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 their children to take part. But uh, um, we also um, did this because we were running a parallel trial, uh, looking at those that were not drinking or very low risk uh, um, or drinking a very low level. Um, so we didn't want to um, avoid or limit the opportunities of uh, people that were not drinking to take part in the, in the parallel study. Um, so the limiting factor within and the ethical complication uh, in, in running a study in any is mostly around the time allowed for you to present and explain the study. And given that the target um, in a &E is usually to have, um, to see the patients within the four hours uh, window. Uh, that was uh, what we had in terms of uh, making sure that uh, the, the participants had enough time to ask questions to understand the study. Um, we also had obviously very strict inclusion and exclusion criteria in terms of whether they were able to uh, uh, well, in some some cases, the level of pain or the conditions they or the reason they presented to any &E was such that was not really appropriate. Uh, but looking at the numbers that uh, we we managed to um, approach around sixty percent of all the attendees 
uh, in A&E during the, our recruitment period. So quite uh, a remarkable achievement there. Um, so yes, th those are the main the, the main concerns. But mostly, once um, I think the ethical procedure was such that uh, when we went through um, uh, through the ethics process, it, it was uh, it was approved uh, with minor changes, uh, and and obviously we were working um, together with the clinical team, making sure that uh, we only approached. Uh, patients that were deemed suitable uh, or uh, uh, for the study. There were a couple of things that you mentioned in your uh, in your discussion, which which I, which I found interesting, which I think are probably worth kind of just making a few notes on. So the, you talked about the NICE or the National Institute for was it Health and Care Excellence now. So you talk about the NICE willingness to pay threshold of twenty to thirty thousand pounds. Can you just uh, explain a little bit about what that threshold represents and, and why it's important for studies like this? Um, yes, I mean, this, this is the uh, willingness to pay for new uh, interventions. Um, and it's essentially in a, in, a, in a society where we have limited resources, uh, the NHS needs to make uh, priorities in terms of what is worth paying. Um, for um, for a specific uh, uh, health improvement, this is usually measured as a quality of life, uh, quality adjusted life uh, years. So essentially, um, any new um, interventions that is developed that falls below these thresholds that guarantees or, or provides. Um, uh, a one year of uh, an, an increase of one year of imperfect health is then justifies uh, its implementation or, or its cost. So this is obviously an important measure to have in mind when you develop uh, a new interventions, uh, because if it's too expensive, obviously, even if it, even if, if it provides uh, uh, benefits in health, it might be too expensive to, for the NHS to be implemented in the long run. Um, so our studies, uh, our intervention were falling below these thresholds uh, anyway. But um, as I mentioned earlier, they, they, they were not effective. So also the cost effectiveness was not there. So um, I mean, I, I do think it's important to note here that it's, you know, it, it is so important that that null findings get published and, and get written up properly. Um, and they are as important to progress as, as, as positive findings. So it's, it's, I always find it really interesting what you can draw from those, uh, those kinds of experiments, even though they might certainly for you, you know, there may be some feelings of kind of deflation if you've, if you've hoped that you will find something that would be effective in this area. Um, what, are you, uh, what are you moving on to next? What other pieces of research um, are you looking at at the moment? Yeah, I just want to reiterate your, your comments about uh, publishing, uh, you know, paper uh, uh, with null fundings is, is quite uh, is quite important. Uh, we, obviously, especially when when we when then people tend to do systematic reviews. If we don't have trials that that had null funding, then uh, then that might give an impression that uh, 
like in the case of brief intervention, they might work more than uh, they actually are in, in real life. So it's important also that uh, uh, leading journals like addiction do give uh, space to, to uh, uh, research that has uh, found, uh, found, failed to find um, a positive outcome. Uh, in terms of what we, we we are moving on at the moment, we, we are um, we are looking at um, um, exploring the use of transdermal alcohol devices in 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 clinical and population settings to see uh, if they have a role in terms of monitoring alcohol consumption um, as part of clinical practice. Uh, as part of, for instance, of contingency management. Uh, so trying to reward patients for not drinking, but having them monitored through these uh, novel uh, transdermal devices. Um, and we, I'm also, I'm also always keen about uh, in using technologies uh, as part of uh, clinical intervention. So we are also looking at uh, virtual re reality is a way of uh, um, addressing craving and and uh, reducing relapse uh, when uh, people are in treatment. Wow, uh, uh, plenty going on. Um, I, and I hope for your sake for some uh, positive findings from that. Um, even if even if scientifically everything is good. <laughs> yes, I mean that, that's always the hope that uh, we'll we'll find some uh, positive. Uh, findings in, in, in what we do. But uh, I'm actually not too disappointed in the fact that uh, the, this study that we have been talking about and, and previous one were negative. It, it, you know, it, they contribute to the field. They give, uh, uh, you know, uh, some cautious uh, note on, on, on the reason why we should be more careful in, 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 in in how we implement, especially in, in real world uh, settings, um, these uh, this interventions. Absolutely. Uh, wonderful. Um, uh, Dr. Paolo De Luca, thank you so much for your time. Uh, you're welcome, Rob.